0: Welcome to the Faith Today podcast, conversations inspired by Canada's Christian magazine. Gordon T. Smith's latest book is Wisdom from Babylon Leadership for the Church in a Secular Age, published last year by IVP Academic. Gordon is president of Ambrose University and Seminary in Calgary and fits into my category of author of many books. I'm Karen Stiller, and in my interview with Gordon, he helps us understand what a secular age looks like and how a deeply hospitable church can respond and just be in a time that feels new and different, but not without its own beautiful possibilities. So Gordon, the subtitle of your book, Leadership for the Church in a Secular Age, tell me what our secular age looks like, first of all.
1: Well, it's important for you to to know, and I state right up front, that I lean into the expertise of sociologists, of historians, and of philosophers who are describing what Charles Taylor spoke of, he coined the phrase, the secular age. And it's a very helpful way to think about the times in which we are living and to recognize fundamentally that something has shifted during our lifetimes. And the importance, it seems to me, to name that reality And then to be astute and innovative and uh, wise, discerning in the way that we respond to that reality. So I use—I mean, I'm a Bob Dylan fan, and so naturally I lean into the times they are changing. And I—I have been—I mean, I've been aware of this song for years, but was just struck by when I was doing the research on from those three sources—sociologists, historians, and philosophers—who all talk about the 1960s, especially in Canada and in Quebec that Dylan released that in 1963, how prescient that poet was and and of course remains. What do we mean by secular age? We mean an age in which the religious voice, and for those of us who are Christians, it means the Christian voice, is now just one voice at the table, so to speak. It's no longer the, uh, the privileged voice. And what is noteworthy about the secular voice, of course, is that it presumes that there is no transcendent reality that this is all that there is. And so the civic square is a square in which the assumption is that there is no reality other than what you can taste, touch, feel, and see, and that's all reality. So that those of us who believe there is another reality, a transcendent reality, are a minority voice at the table. Hopefully, we're a continued voice at the table.
0: So, Gordon, what would you say to a church that responds defensively to that new reality. When, when we hear that we're no longer a privileged voice, some people, I think, are more likely to say, well, what are the opportunities here? But sometimes pe- the church also gets a little defensive and wants to maybe <laughs> retake their position. Can you speak to that?
1: Well, indeed, and that, I mean that's actually quite common as we're doing this recording. We're well aware of what's happening south of the border and how much of that is fueled by a desire to keep, even if it means a theocracy, even if it means denying democracy, to sustain a Christian privilege voice in the, in the three big zones, the courts, the schools, and the legislature. Those tend to be the battlegrounds. And to use those battlegrounds to preserve Christian privilege. Unfortunately, I think sometimes that, re, that re means white privilege Unfortunately, I think it means that it creates an adversarial posture to our culture. But I think it's a losing cause. I mean, if you look back at all the way back to Soren Kierkegaard in the mid-19th century, secularity has been the driving force of Western society for more than a century. This is not, this is not a clock we're going to turn back. And even if we were to have the argument about turning back the clock, Kierkegaard would argue that, that it's, a, it's, the wrong, it's the wrong battle that the greater battle is to sustain a distinctive Christian identity wherever we are located.
0: I love, in your book, you write about that distinctive Christian identity uh, in ways that I think are so important and helpful. Let's dive into that. What does that distinctive Christian identity look like for you? What are the most important elements of it?
1: Um, None of this is original to me. In fact, this whole book I view as, all I'm doing is curating a conversation. And that's partly how I do much of my, my work as a theologian. Often it's curating a conversation. And I'm very impressed with a number of voices, going back to perhaps Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Leslie Newbegin, Newbegin from the British Isles, Bonhoeffer from Germany, in terms of how they talked about the church. And here, when I talk about a Christian identity, it is very much a corporate collective identity. That is, we're thinking of an ecclesial community, a faith community, how can we cultivate a distinctive culture, distinctive way of seeing, of thinking, that is an alternate community to the society in which we are a part? And that does not mean that we are not fully embracing our world, but we embrace it as participants in an alternate society or an alternate community. What, again, Newbegin spoke of as the church, as the hermeneutic of the gospel. And so we are living out the gospel as a faith community. And we have people like Jamie Smith, James K.A. Smith, who suggest that oftentimes the church is secularized rather than being the alternate community that is providing an alternate way of living and being and empowering people to be in the world. So I have found it helpful to think of the church as a liturgical community. That is, we're a worshiping community that sustain a vibrant sense of transcendence, that we're a teaching learning community that is cultivating the Christian mind, and that we are a missional community and again, this is so Noob again, where he argues, it's not just that we support missions, we are on mission, where we are empowering all of God's people to be, uh, to be agents of redemptive change in the communities of which they're a part.
0: Can you talk to me more about liturgical? And I ask that as an Anglican. I love liturgy, but I think automatically when I hear you say liturgical, I think of our Sunday morning worship service and how, you know, the template of worship, let's say. Is that what you're meaning when you say liturgical here?
1: Yeah, year, years ago in Vancouver, I was the pastor there of a larger church, and I was the part-time, I was the pastor of the liturgical service. And, of course, everybody knew what that meant, you know, I was robed and all of this and it was very formal and so on, and there were prayers and so on. And I'm using the language liturgical to speak of all of the ways in which, but especially the way in which on Sunday morning or whenever it happens, there is a structure, there is a design, but it doesn't matter whether you're charismatic Pentecostal or Baptist or Anglican at the other end, all of us have certain liturgies. My concern is that that liturgy needs to foster transcendence. It needs to draw us into another sphere of reality. And we may not become Eastern Orthodox, who speak of the Eucharist as stepping into that other sphere of reality, but I think those that are worship leaders or liturgical leaders, whether as musicians or as preachers or as prayers, whatever they are, whatever their role in the shared worship, that they are drawing us into and fostering a sense of the other sphere of reality. We are stepping into, we are rehearsing, to use Bob Weber's language, what it means to be at the marriage supper of the Lamb. So uh, um, what are the practices, what are the dispositions that are being nurtured, what are the practices that are being followed that cultivate that sense of transcendence? And this is particularly important when we live in a secular age that, that denies transcendence, we are in the face of that secularity saying, no, there is another sphere of reality. And I, uh, where I want to push back, and it's, uh, I think it's gentle, some people may not think it's so gentle, or I want to push back where we make the seeker or we make uh, God's people the focus of attention as though it's all about me and my felt needs. And I want to say, no, when you gather with these people, the focus of attention is on the ascended Christ and Christ is present to us in real time. And so what does it mean to cultivate a sense of that we are now in the presence of the risen and ascended Lord? And yes, that will involve reverence for those that want to resist the idea of formality and reverence, we're stepping into the throne of thrones, the holy of holies. We'd better be reverent, but also to sustain a sense of, uh, of dynamic, resilient joy because we know Sunday after Sunday we declare it again that Christ sits on the throne of the universe. Thanks be to God. And I, want, I, need, I need that uh, deep sense of that Christ sits on the throne of the universe in the midst of whatever it is I'm called to do Monday through Friday. So it shapes and informs my capacity to be in the world and it's a liturgy then that is not escapist, but actually empowers me to live in the world confident that Christ sits on the throne of the universe. So not escapist,
0: but clearly other than maybe what the world offers or is popular. And I, I think, not to pick on anybody, but I'm when you're speaking about what liturgy looks like and what Sunday morning looks like, I thought about Maybe we've moved out of this, but the whole seeker-friendly template, or trying to make church service feel like anything (laughs) else—you know, a concert. Let's say. I know I am picking on people. Um, How do you respond to that?
1: Well, I think so. so I think there needs to be both continuity and discontinuity. Okay. So many voices: N.T. Wright, James Smith. Many have spoken about how our liturgies actually need to be deeply aware of the deep longings and aspirations. Of the people the longing for home for example which is so palpable amongst Chinese young people there the longing for home well we can say this is where home is found it is found with your Heavenly Father in and through Christ Jesus there needs to be a sense in which we are located in this culture in this society at this time but there also needs to be a sense of deep discontinuity and I think the genius of liturgical leadership is capturing that continuity discontinuity that indeed the discontinuity is that no, now we are transcending our national identities, our patriotic identities, and even our cultural identities and willing to speak about the disconnect between the gospel and the cultures of which we are a part. And we're willing to hear that gospel challenged. And we're willing to lament the deep wrongs that are happening within our culture so that it's not always a feel-good experience. True worship is marked by lament and true, true worship is marked by prophetic witness that calls us to challenge, you might say, the gods of our age. But at the same time, there should be deep comfort, a deep sense that I have found home. This is the deepest yearning of my life, is to live in part of a community where I know the love of God that is embodied in this group of people who have this love for one another across socioeconomic lines and who have this resilient joy that all of us long for. We all long to be loved. And we all long to know a resilient joy. And we find it with this alternate community. But the key is they've found it because they're not leaning into the gods of our age, but they they found it because they have found it in Christ Jesus.
0: You write one of the many quotes I wrote down when I read your book, true worship cannot be one happy song after another. <laughs> and I <laughs> I thought that was a brave thing to say, but uh, so so true. And when you were speaking there, I was thinking of a community like that You don't have to pretend to be a part of it. It feels like you can show up as you are, how you are, and and receive and be led into worshiping.
1: There's no doubt within my own uh, religious subculture, as one pastor put it of Asian descent, but more Canadian than I am, as he puts it, we're just a happy, clappy bunch. And Mm -hmm. uh, he was saying this in response to the propensity, I think, influenced by various movements of our day to sing happy songs because that's what Because Jesus is alive, we can sing happy songs. But what the Old Testament prophets tell us is that true joy is only found through the portal of lament. And without lament, we will not know true joy. Mourning is the precursor to a resilient joy. And when the church does not know how to lament, that should furrow our brow. Interesting, I've had an ongoing conversation about this with various groups in the U.S., and many people of white communities are telling me that it's the black Americans, African Americans, they know how to lament and they can teach all of us what it means to lament and how lament then is the precursor to joy. So yes, that's an indispensable part. But I want to add though, it's not just lament for our own experience. What I think needs to mark Sunday morning is we feel the pain and fragmentation of our world and guided by the spirit, Romans 8, 26 and 27, we groan with those with sighs too deep for words. And so I think every Sunday needs to be praying for the deep pain and fragmentation of our world, that today we are praying for the earthquake that happened in Indonesia, as it happens to be, or we're aching with our American brothers and sisters for what happened on January the 6th, or within our own country, the pandemic that is running ramshod. And so we feel that lament. We don't end there. The genius of the Psalms is that we can locate our lament not in dis- that leads us not to despair, but it leads us to renewed hope because every Sunday we are reminded that Christ sits on the throne of the universe, and it, and because of that confidence, we can uh, we can lament and we can be and we can repent of our own of our own failures that have led to reasons for why we are lamenting.
0: When I think about people attending church, and I wonder if this is one of the impacts of secularism on Christians, because you you are saying that church is not about us, it's about Jesus, you write that in your book, but I, I don't think a lot of people think that. I think they think church is about them. And, and what they get on Sunday morning, and that uh, what you're describing sounds like a big downer. <laughs> <laughs> so what would you say to that no, person?
1: fair enough. I mean, there's no doubt we live in a consumerist society, and all too easily the church buys into that agenda that we're going to make you feel good. We're going to make this to be a place you want to be. You can either go to Starbucks and have an experience there, or you can come here and have an experience here. My prayer is that our faith communities can actually tap deeper into the deep, uh, the human predicament, the deep angst of the human soul, and that we are, we are not living on the surface but are deeply aware of our fragmentation, deeply aware of, and I'm going to use the word now, the sin word, that is deeply aware of our sin, deeply aware of our brokenness, our sin, and our deep, uh, the deep pathologies. And it may be that we don't show up on Sunday morning until we realize how desperate we are for an external intervention for god's intervention that we cannot we cannot self-construct our lives and I, i know that many people don't walk in the door of the church until they've come to the end of their rope it's a pity but when they do they need to know that this is a place that it's a long journey here we go you're going to start a pilgrimage with us but it's going to be a journey towards healing and wholeness and we are willing here to name the deep fragmentation of our society but I don't, I mean, I just think, we don't speak the gospel. I mean, Ephesians chapter 2 is a, is a scathing description of the human predicament. But Paul does this against the backdrop of the deep confidence we have in the gospel. We do not preach the gospel unless we do so against the backdrop of the depth and breadth of the human predicament. We need to not be shy about that. I've just come from meeting with my GP. Every year I go, I have my full medical I do not need him to say nice, warm things about me, although, you know, I said, (laughs) I was glad when he said a couple of things and I thought, okay, that's good. He says, yeah, oh, looks good. But he's only a true doctor if he will say, Gordon, there's a problem here. He's only a true physician for me, for my body, if he'll name, uh, there's a problem. Yep, this is furrowing my brow. And thus we only serve others faithfully within the church if we're willing to name sin and fragmentation and disease and our brokenness, because that's the only way ultimately to healing.
0: You uh, describe conversion in a way that some, at least in the maybe evangelical subculture, might not be accustomed to thinking about conversion. It's not a moment, it's a journey. That conversion looks different,
1: or coming to Christ looks different in a secular society. Can you speak about that? Well, I've been on that agenda for quite some time. That is, I have been making the point that evangelicalism was, I'm not sure there's a better word here, co-opted, you might say, by revivalism from the 19th century and institutionalized in the 20th century in that the major evangelical institutions, especially in the United States, but because of its global influence, it went global that institutionalized revivalism in a way that was not really a good reflection of the great evangelical renewal movements of the 18th century, let alone the wisdom of the early church. So in this project, I'm drawing on both, but in this project, I'm looking particularly to the ways in which the pre-Christendom church, a minority presence in pre-Christendom Roman Empire, how did they initiate people into the faith? And what I have been both observing, because I have, I read, I, I read probably 100 to 150 conversion narratives a year. I've been doing this for 20 years. I've been studying conversion narratives everywhere from Vietnam to Lebanon to Canada, U.S. and the U.K. and Sweden. What does a conversion actually look like and feel like in a secular society? And while revivalism may have had some currency earlier in this century, now in a post-Christian secular society, it's too great a leap to expect a person to make the transition from, from being a completely secular person to a religious person in an evening at an altar call. We are naive to the distance, the bridge, the journey that needs to happen. So the language of journey actually comes from Bob Weber. He speaks of journey to faith. I want to leverage that kind of wisdom to speak about how the early church and the 18th century evangelical revivalists or renewal movement, John Wesley, Jonathan Edwards, assumed that it was a journey. And therefore, and and then the church then, so this has huge implications for what it means to be the church. The church then becomes a community where many people around us are on that journey. They've opened them up. They've expressed the willingness to explore the faith, and they're on that journey. And they come slowly, gradually, and incrementally. And that the genius of a community is when do we say to someone, are you ready to make the step? Are you ready to make the initiation into faith? Are you ready to be baptized or whatever it happens to be within our tradition, within our subculture? That is, are you ready to make that move? But we don't force it. It comes slowly, gradually and incrementally. And we trust the Spirit to do the Spirit's work in a person's life. And I would add, I don't think we live with this, what was for so much a part of my upbringing that We want somebody to get across the line as quickly as possible lest they're going to go to hell. Right. Uh, no, no, let's just trust God to do God's work and God's time in the life of this person, whether they're in their senior years or they're a high school young person, that God is uh, gently, winsomely drawing them, and we can let God do God's work and God's time in the life of this young person. And my observation, or about, not so much my observation, the documentation out of Sweden is that an average conversion is six years In the uk five years so when we look at these more secularized societies when you when they when they when they describe these conversion narratives the average length is six years oh that means in sweden many are longer oh that means the church needs to be a very patient place as somebody is on that journey and many who are joining us for worship are on a journey to jesus many of us have arrived but we are hospitable to them while they're on the way and that hospitality for me that's why I end this manuscript with hospitality. I think it is the sine qua non, it is the mark of the church in a secular society. And it's evident here as much as in other aspects of what it means to be a faith community.
0: Yeah, I love your exploration of hospitality and that's where I wanted us to land today. So, so let's get into that. How, how are we hospitable? Hospitality obviously means far more than the potluck.
1: Hey, how are I we like hospitable?
0: <laughs> I'm a big fan as well,
1: <laughs> but how are we to be a hospitable church? Well, it's interesting. I had hospitality earlier in the manuscript uh, as kind of I called it an interlude uh, between two chapters. And the editor, uh, John Boyd, to whom I'm just so deeply grateful, uh, John said, "Gordon, if you anybody reading your book would realize that you think hospitality." is where all of this has to end. Why don't you end there? So he's the one that persuaded me to make it the conclusion. And as soon as he said it, there was just this light bulb, like, of course. And I, I chuckle at your reference to the potluck. But I, I was a pastor in the late 70s, early 80s in Peterborough, Ontario. And we just, as a church, we decided thir- once a month, on the third Sunday of the month, we had an evening service. Those were, you know, those were the days you had a Sunday evening service. That we would come early, and and the women, mainly women, occasionally a man, would prepare lasagna, and we would, you know, they would, we would, and as the pastor, of course, I had to taste, sample everybody's lasagna. <laughs> uh, that was part of the joke, part of the, you know, part of the shtick of the evening. Sure. But we started to realize that was where people started to kind of invite neighbors and friends to join us, and we made that service less of a of an awkward bridge. I spoke very intentionally to what I think. People were longing for and aspiring for. So it was very much a bridge kind of a evening. But we realized that meal, oh, this was where this may be the most significant thing we were doing missionally. It wasn't just for us. We, had, we started out, then we wanted to eat together and began to realize that at table, and then I started to preach on it. I started to go back and to see how frequently Jesus was at table with others, whether it was with Zacchaeus. Or, for me, the most moving example is Jesus with Peter in John chapter 21, where he makes breakfast for him to realize the power of hospitality. And this has been a recurring theme. Again, no surprise. We go back to the early church and realize the Benedictine tradition viewed hospitality as the fundamental way by which they engaged their culture and society. They were never so disengaged that they were in an adversarial relationship, but it was always one of hospitality. And to realize that hospitality involves is part of the liturgy, our worship, to the people that are next to us. Hospitality is also essential to our teaching and learning as a community. Am I hospitable to you as a fellow learner? And then hospitality is essential to our engagement with our world. And what I, what I long for, and it's not unique to me, Dorothy Bass, of course, is a huge voice on this score. She's been making this point for two decades that, uh, that our, our society at large needs to experience us and see us, not as judges and critics in an adversarial posture, but as people with open hands that are eager to build bridges, who are the most vocal uh, supporters of Canada as a nation who welcomes the immigrant. That is, we are eager to. It was so moving for me last year to preach at the Ottawa Chinese Alliance Church. And before I got up to preach, these people of Chinese descent told the story of their coming to Canada as boat people out of Vietnam, this one woman of Chinese descent, and ultimately came to Canada, was welcomed in Canada. And then she showed the video of a third of the congregation at the airport, Ottawa Airport, welcoming two Syrian families and their just their palpable joy as they welcomed these families. And they said, as we were received, now we're doing it. And I think, what a, what, a, what a testimony to my country. I was pretty proud of Canada at that point. But at that point, to view this as this is something that the church needs to be taking the lead on, not resisting. And that we are advocates for, the immigrant, the homeless. Who are we offering hospitality to? And within my own context, to understand here, what does it mean that I'm on the traditional lands of the Blackfoot people? What does it mean when, in actual fact, indigenous young people feel uncomfortable in my space, in my world, in the university that I lead? And that therefore, somebody you know well, Mark Buchanan, Mark and Cheryl make the point, hospitality may mean not them coming to us, that we are willing to feed them our stuff, but that we're willing to go into their communities and sit down with them and receive their gifts, that hospitality is always two ways. What does it mean for our students to visit a local mosque and to accept their hospitality? It's actually an act of hospitality to them to accept their hospitality. That we are bridge builders and that hospitality then becomes something that we cultivate between you and me, between myself and my sons, between my my family systems, my daughters-in-law. It starts, there's always these concentric circles. What I loathe though, is the idea that hospitality is pragmatic. We're going to be hospitable because then maybe they'll buy the product. So, you know, the, the, you know, when you buy a car and you walk into the dealership, they're very hospitable to you. They've got, you know, they've got an agenda. They want you to buy their product. I would like us to view hospitality as just something we do. And if the Spirit uses it, great. But we, we avoid the kind of the pragmatic, let's be hospitable because then they'll buy the product. That is, then maybe they'll become Christian what was so common in the 1980s, friendship evangelism. And I agree, we need to cultivate friendships with our neighbors, but still to allow God to do God's work in God's time. And if our neighbor ever thinks I'm going to switch and bait, up till now I've been hospitable, but as soon as you reject my faith, I'm no longer hospitable, ouch.
0: Yeah, I think that is so important and challenging, like deeply challenging. It requires deep heart work to be honest that we have ulterior motives and then to try to get rid of them.
1: Yeah. And for me, it comes back to our pneumatology. That is, it comes back to trusting the spirit to do the spirit's work in the spirit's time. And I speak as one who struggles with impatience. You know, I'm going to I'm going to write on it someday and just write on it because I'm dealing with I want to be I want to learn the grace of patience and patience for me. Ultimately, I've used this line a number of times is letting God do God's work in God's time. And for whatever reasons, God seems to be in no hurry yeah. <laughs> uh, in the life of the people that I care about, in the life of the communities and countries I care about, in the institution I'm, I'm involved in. God works slowly, gradually and incrementally, but assuredly brings about God's purposes in God's time. Thank you for listening.
0: Check out more podcasts and subscribe to Faith Today magazine for free at faithtoday.ca.
1: This podcast is produced by the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada. If you enjoyed it, please rate or share it.